I invite you to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the New Testament, again to 1 Timothy, today chapter 4, it's on page 992 of those Bibles in the pews, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'd like to remind you, if you uh, do not have a Bible and would like one, if you'll come to the prayer room after the service, we have a Bible that we'll give to you. Before I read this, I would like to um, tell you the theme of it is on what is a good servant of Christ, what's a good minister. I'm I'm often asked by people that move away from our congregation and move to another city, they will say, hey, we're moving to such and such a city, we've never lived there, do you have any churches that you can recommend? And if it's a place I'm, I'm not too familiar with, then I'll do a little research and get back with them and I'll say this is, here are one or two churches that I've, I've heard good things about. But really, what do we mean by a good church or a good uh, pastor or a good Christian? If someone says, well, that's a, that's a good Christian woman, that's a good Christian man, what do we mean by that? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to use this very phrase as he writes to Timothy. Just, just a reminder that Timothy was a pastor in the ancient city of Ephesus, a cosmopolitan area. It was not a small town, it was a large city. Paul had planted the church there roughly seven years before this letter was written. He had spent three years there, the longest place he ministered at one time. He had established leaders, appointed elders, trained them, and his departing words some years before he writes this to those elders were, savage wolves will come in with false teaching, some even from your own midst. And will try to lead people astray. Well, now that has happened. And Timothy's been sent there to deal with some of the false teaching that's been promoted within the church. So now as we come to verses 6 and following, hear these words from 1 Timothy 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let me lead us in prayer once again. Father, we come now with hungry souls needing spiritual food. You've told us that your word will not return to you void without accomplishing what you desire. We ask you to work in our hearts now. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What is a mark of a good servant, a good follower? Of Christ Jesus because there's application to Timothy as a pastor but there's also general application for all of us first indication is we have good teaching in our lives we recognize false teaching it's a sign of a good minister of Christ to lay before people the positive answer to false teaching and that is God's truth so when when Paul says to him have nothing to do with certain things he says godless irreverent silly tales And we saw some of those two weeks ago, if you were here, when we looked at the first five verses of chapter 4, 
where there were some people that we would call ascetics. They had certain regimented aspects in life that they forced on other people, saying, if you don't do these things, uh, which were good things, they basically were down on marriage and they were down on food, certain foods. And so they were trying to tell God's people that if you really want to be committed to God, then you also will not marry and you will not partake of certain foods. Well, all through the scripture, God has said that marriage is a good thing in the right context, and he has said, he has declared all foods to be okay. Not that we should eat everything, but that we can eat everything rather than following the Old Testament dietary laws that he had given to the Jewish nation. And so Paul condemns that in the strongest words. Well, we might get the impression that he's saying, well, there, there is no law then. There, we can just, we'll just be thankful to the Lord and do whatever we want. Well, right on the heels of that, he says, now discipline, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's interesting to note that Timothy had been taught the truth, and he had been taught it by his mother. He had been taught it by his grandmother. He had been taught it by the Apostle Paul, and we can assume other Christian teachers in the early church. So I want to ask you, parents, grandparents, do you ever stop and think that what you are teaching your child or your children may one day be multiplied a thousandfold if God raises up this little one to be one who would teach the truth to others as a minister or preacher or evangelist or teacher in whatever context? I seriously doubt if Timothy's mother and grandmother knew the impact that they would be having on many, many other lives when they were teaching Timothy the basics of the truth, the basics of the gospel and the scriptures, and yet they were. So he says that a, a good servant of Christ recognizes good teaching and false teaching, but also a good servant of Christ will be godly. He says, discipline or train yourself to godliness. What is Godliness. Uh, often we think, well, a godly person is just real quiet and shy. Maybe they walk around humming hymns all day. And, you know, people walk on them and they say thank you. And No, here's what the Bible describes, and I'm going to read it because I, I, want it, I want to be precise. The word godliness means reverence. It means reverence. It describes the respect that the believer has for God. It comes from the awareness that all of life is lived before the face of God. John Calvin called godliness the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. The godly person places God at the center of every activity and every endeavor. God is in the sleeping and in the waking. God is in the eating and in the drinking. God is in the coming and in the going. The godly person walks with God at home at work, at church, at school, and at play. Godliness includes godly thoughts, godly speech, godly behavior. It's the attitude toward life which was expressed by King David in Psalm 16 when he said, I have set the Lord always before me. So true godliness differs from compartmentalization like we have today where my faith only comes to bear in certain categories of life, maybe in just in the way I behave on a certain day or in a certain place. 
But in other categories, we see no correlation. That is not godliness. Godliness is respecting God in every facet of your life. So here are the, some of the steps, you might say, the approaches to growing in godliness. First, he says, train yourself. In verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. Train li literally means, it's the word we get, gymnastics and gymnasium. It's a place of physical training. <clears throat> so you have to train yourself. It is my personal responsibility to train myself for, the, for, for godliness. No one else can do it for me. No one else can do it for you. You cannot rely on another person to train you in godliness. You can't rely on your spouse or your parents or, or a good friend or a Sunday school teacher or a youth leader. You have to train yourself. And I know this is not without debate. I think it's my personal opinion, I want to stress my personal opinion, that most of us are as godly as we choose to be. Because godliness is not a gift like a spiritual gift. And so if year after year we kind of seem the same in our walk with Christ as far as the devotions in our life to prayer and knowledge and application of his word or whatever areas else, if we remain the same, I think it's because we've chosen to do that. So we train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. I do not know God's specific will for your life, nor do you know it for one another. You may be facing a large decision about a job or a purchase or a school or whatever it may be, and you can seek counsel from others and say, what, what do you think God would have me do in this situation? Most of us do not know the specifics of other people's lives. We rarely know them for our own life, what we ought to do, for sure. But I do know this. God desires for you to grow in godliness. I have no doubt that if you are a professing Christian here today, if you put your faith in Christ, that is God's will for you to train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, it says that godliness does not ha happen automatically. It, it assumes it's difficult, and it's, it requires diligent training. And he says that physical training is of some value. Bodily training, it says in verse 8, is of some value. We can see, quickly uh, see the benefits of physical training in other areas of life. I mean... We admire the fact when a, a professional athlete, we can be amazed at some of the things they can do that perhaps have been repeated and practiced thousands of times leading up to that. Or musicians, or surgeons, or, or others that have, have crafted their skill and trained themselves through years of discipline, and we admire that. But when it comes to godliness, we hesitate. As though, wait, that's true in other areas of life, but that should not be the case with the pursuit of God. And we tend to think, well, doesn't that sound legalistic? Doesn't it sound legalistic that we say we're saved totally by grace, it's a free gift, and now I'm supposed to discipline myself for the purpose of godliness? It's not legalistic. Legalism is self-centered. But self-discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this to gain God's merit. I will do this to get him to accept me and to love me. But the disciplined heart says, 
I will do this because I love God, and I want to follow him. And no one demonstrated this better than the Apostle Paul. Paul did not tolerate legalism for one second. So much of what he wrote was a condemnation of legalism because that had been his whole past. He had relied on his religious credentials to make him right with God. He knew the dangers of legalism. He saw that that was not the gospel, but it was opposed to the gospel. And yet listen to these words that he says about his own work and labor in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's what he said. He said, I worked harder. I worked harder at laboring to serve the Lord, but it was God's grace that was doing this through me. I forgot who said it, but I wrote it down. Grace is the lifeblood of the disciplined life. So we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness dependent on God's grace. Now note the contrast. Physical training and godly training. Physical training has some value. Godliness has value for all things. Well, what does he mean some value? Think of the value that does come from physical training. Think of just basic exercise. If you try and Stay in shape. If you walk or jog or, or do something to give your body an aerobic training effect, if you maybe lift weights or what, whatever it is that you do to take care of yourself with exercise and diet, here's something to remember. It's only temporary. The best conditioned athletes in the world, the best conditioned physically people will eventually lose that and they will not be able to do the things they can do now. Tom Brady Drew Brees will not always be able to throw footballs. Andy Roddick will not be able to play tennis. Lindsey Vaughn will not always be a downhill racer. So it's, it's temporary. Physical training only yields a temporary result because of our, the nature of our bodies. It's also fragile. Think about our bodies. Even in the peak of conditioning, they're still susceptible to illness disease or an injury that can take it away. Something as simple as a pulled hamstring or a person that just shifts their weight and tears an ACL or an, or an infection from a small cut. We're fragile. So physical training is of some value, but only some. Also, it's limited. Training typically only helps the person who is training, not a bunch of other people. So here's a person who devotes countless hours to weight training and sculpting their body, who is actually helped by that? Now, there's benefit to that person and maybe to the immediate family. You could say, well, there's benefit in that, you know, what might have happened? What if, what if they had gotten very sick because they're not taking care of their health or they're able to do a better job? Okay, there is some value. That's what Paul is saying. There's some value, some benefit. But by and large, physical training is is for the benefit of that one individual. But godliness, on the other hand, has value for all things. It is not temporary. You will outlive it. You can take it with you. It is not fragile. It is not limited in its effect. It has value for all circumstances and all seasons of life. There's nothing else. I don't know about you, but can you think of anything else you can take with you that will last forever? <laughs> I heard of a 
advertisement for a tattoo parlor. It said, you can take it with you. <laughs> it also benefits others. Your spiritual maturity will benefit other people around you, in your family, in your friends, in the workplace. My commitment to Christ, my spiritual discipline has an impact on you that hear me preach and are in this church. There are many things, and I'll say this on a, a personal note. Uh, as a pastor, there are many expectations. Most of those go unmet. <laughs> Not being at the place someone thought you ought to be at the time you ought to be or saying what you said at the right time and so forth. But here's a legitimate expectation I would give you, and I hope that you do have this for me and any pastor. I owe you a close walk with God. I owe you obedience to what Paul was telling Timothy as a pastor, to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. That is my obligation. That is my responsibility, not only as an individual believer, but also as a pastor. Um, you should require that uh, of a pastor to the best you can. You should make it known that you think that's the, the top priority. And you think also of how certain people, they, it benefits others, their godliness. Uh, Billy Graham has been in the news this past week because of being in the hospital with pneumonia. I'm, I'm told he's a little better. Now in his 90s, I was with a uh, friend many years ago camping. We had our sons and we were out camping and we were talking and he told me how years before he had been at a conference where Billy Graham was speaking and he happened to end up being in a long conversation with one of the men who was Billy Graham's associate, a very close associate of his. So my friend said to this man, hey, tell me some stuff about Billy Graham nobody knows. I think he was looking for some of the negative things. He said, you really want to know? He said, yeah, I really want to know. Tell me some stuff nobody knows. He said, okay. He said, you see that suit he was wearing today when he spoke? He said, yeah. He said, that's one of two suits he has. He didn't buy them. They were given to him. He doesn't spend money on clothes. And they've got a nice house, but that was a gift they live in in North Carolina. Uh, he drives an old car. He takes a uh, minimum salary at that time. is like $60,000 a year. It was very, very modest for a person in that position. And he says... He gets up every morning and spends two hours early reading the Bible and praying. He says, that's some stuff about Billy Graham nobody knows. <laughs> think how we, think how the world has benefited. Now, Billy Graham's not perfect. His ministry's not been perfect. He was a man who committed himself to evangelism. That's what he decided early in his ministry. He was not going to be a professor or a theologian. He was going to be an evangelist. I don't know of any Christian leader at least in the, past, in the modern era, that has had such an unblemished life. There's been no scandal. There's been no duplicity. No stories breaking about money that was taken or misappropriated or anything like that. And so it's been a good, it's been a good thing. I think what, that's a higher example of where the training for godliness has value for all. There's a value that's multiplied out of your life and affects other people. True godliness makes one a better employee, a better employer, a better spouse, a better member of the church. Well, what is it he's referring to that Timothy and that we should discipline ourselves toward, the training ourselves to godliness? We know from other scriptures there are certain tools for growth like prayer. Jesus modeled prayer. 
Mark 1 tells us very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If even the, the Son of God needed time with the Father, don't we all? He had perfect communication with him, and yet he needed to spend daily time in prayer. He told parables to encourage us to pray, parables like the man who knocked on his neighbor's door at midnight needing food to give to a traveler. And Jesus told that parable saying, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep keep asking about perseverance in prayer. Sincere prayer emerges from need. Most of us don't lack motivation to pray when we have a need, when we are suffering or there's a problem. And think of the needs addressed in the Lord's Prayer. Daily sustenance, forgiveness, deliverance from temptation, deliverance from the evil one. So prayer, we also know through Scripture, it tells us we need the Word to train ourselves with an intake of of the Scriptures. I love the verses in 1 Peter. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in salvation. What a simple picture that hopefully we can all understand. Like a newborn baby crave pure spiritual milk. Our daughter Sarah had her firstborn this past Tuesday in Dallas. Hudson Bryant Taylor. Her last name's Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the missionary. Bryant's a family name. Tom Anderson texts me and said, what's his name? And I said, Hudson Bryant Taylor. He said, great, are they going to name him Bear? No, it was not named for football. I was there Friday. came back yesterday. Barbara's still there. Pray for me. (laughs) I have Stephen. I have been up since so early this morning. I think I'm leaving here to go eat supper in a few minutes. But here's this little four, uh, four days after birth. I'm sitting there, and they're reading their pamphlets, the latest nutritional information for babies, that the baby needs eight to ten feedings every 24 hours. Every two to two and a half hours, this baby needs milk. And I'm like, huh? Four days old? Not ready for eggs and bacon? Maybe a little coffee? Black coffee, maybe peanut butter and jelly at lunch, potato chips, wash it down with a Coke. Pure spiritual milk, small amounts. Now that is the picture that Peter refers to us, especially as new believers, pure spiritual milk. I don't think we can exaggerate it to say if you do not. Let me put it this way. Let's start fresh. Let's start today, December 4th. Regardless of your past, and you hopefully will see this, and if your trust is in Christ, if you're a believer and you say, I want to discipline myself, I want to train myself for the purpose of godliness, and I want to either do something new or start something fresh, then I would say start a regular intake of God's Word in small amounts. I mean, you can listen to it on an iPod, you can read it and with any size print on your Kindle or whatever you have, or you can listen to it. We have no excuse as far as accessibility today of God's Word. But I would say start with small amounts, just small amounts that you can do. Don't, don't put failure into the formula from the beginning. Don't say, well, I'm going to read through the Old Testament this week and the New Testament next week. Just start small. John Kinzer challenged us at the Wednesday luncheon a 
couple of weeks ago as he was teaching from the book of Proverbs. He reminded us that Proverbs has 31 chapters. If you're looking for a reading plan for Proverbs, then pick the chapter that correlates with the day of the month. So today on the 4th would be the 4th chapter of Proverbs. Start small, like a newborn babe longing for the pure milk of the Word. Other spiritual disciplines, weekly worship, personal worship, corporate worship, Bible study, fellowship. Worship begins with us individually, then we gather corporately to worship together, assuming we've already been worshiping individually during the week. Life change occurs most often in small groups. We find small groups were part of the church's ministry from the very beginning in the New Testament. Acts 2 tells us every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Have you given prayerful thought to being in a small group with others if you've not already done so? Now, many of you have. We have like 400 of our members are in various types of small groups. But if you're not, you might give thought in prayer to that. Another discipline, be a daily witness for God. Be alert and pray for opportunities each day just to perhaps speak to another person with a question like, hey, where are you at with God these days? Ain't nobody's going to punch you out for that, that you just asked a question that showed you care. Last night, well, yesterday I got a two-page email from a friend of mine. He lives in Florida. He used to live in middle Georgia. He sold a business about eight or ten years ago, moved to Florida with his family, and started another business there. He's been very involved in, in missions and in a local church. And he wrote me this leading up to some questions that he wanted to ask me, where he, he was telling me about the church he's in started doing journey groups uh, a year or so ago, like our church has been doing journey groups for the past several years. And he was telling about that he was in his pastor's group last year, but this year he started his own. So he's leading a journey group. And he says, It has been rewarding, exciting, work, and at times a burden, but it is the best thing going on in my life right now. My group is really an eclectic group. None are members of our church. All our guys I prayed about asking to join, and all the ones I knew would not join. They ended up joining. All the sure bets to join did not accept my invitation. Then he goes man by man and tells me what they're like. I'm not going to read them all to you. It's quite humorous. But the first one, he says, lawyer, just getting to know Jesus, but open and eager. Mom is Jewish. Dad's a Mexican of German descent. Catholic, no faith. Wonderful wife that is a godly woman. He's really growing. You'd love it. We talked about idolatry, and he named the worst idol in his life, Alabama football. <laughs> My friend went to Auburn that wrote this. Second man is a recycling junk dealer. New in our area, met him at our son's school. Turns out his wife is helping as a parent rep for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Another guy is my old Christian roommate, sort of retired, wonderful person. So excited he's in the group. First week he said, hey, I've never been in a small group. I'm a pretty private person, so it will take me a while before I'll be able to talk to you guys about real stuff. That's what he wrote there. And then he goes on, it is a journey, but it's fun. Then he mentions some more. One of the other guys said, 
a realtor, divorced, three children, living with a nice young lady. He has split custody of a mixed family. He was raised Seventh-day Adventist and knows scripture. Mom was a dominant person of faith in his family. Grandfather was a military chaplain. He's spiritual and thinks he's open. He sort of is, sort of ain't. (laughs) All tangled up with Seventh-day Adventist stuff outwardly, but mentally he fights because he's hung up on bad teaching. I love this guy. He told me after seven weeks as we were going out to look at a house on the market, you know why I joined this group? My friend said, no. He said, because you never asked me to go to church. So I think you asked me because you like me. And you haven't asked me to go to church, but someday I probably will. But thanks for asking me to meet with you guys. That's kind of an interesting angle, isn't it? Not much for some, but for me it was a real moment. I knew there were three of us in the truck, Frank, me, and God. He goes on and talks about others. Now, let me just, some of you can help me with this. He said, I know you're busy and this is the season, but I'm trying to get some answers, and so if you will send me answers to two per- persistent questions. They're always asking. One, John 14, 6, is Jesus the only way? What about babies, natives in the jungle that never hear his name, and what about Old Testament people? Two, literalism, that's what I call it. Question would be like this, well, why do we take part of the Bible literally and other stuff not literally? How do I help these guys contextualize the Bible? What are some of the keys that will help open the scriptures for them? And third, authority of the Bible, is it inspired? I'll knock those out in five minutes right after the service. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll go home and refer him to some book that's about this long. You can give somebody something to read. We send visitors to our church a little pamphlet by Billy Graham entitled Steps to Peace with God. Uh, you could give, some, give one to someone you've been praying for to, and ask them to read it and just see what they think about it. Last of all, a good servant is committed also to the global task of world evangelism in verse 10. He says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is a Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Why do we labor and toil so that others may know? Now, verse 10 can look confusing because of the word especially those who believe. It does not mean there are two kinds of salvation, that there's a general salvation for everybody and then there's a special salvation just for believers. The best translation seems to be in other words. So it could be read, God, who is the Savior of all people, in other words, of those who believe, in all kinds of people. I want to leave you with, the, with a, a story I read this week. Because as we talk about disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, there is always tension back to the fact that we're saved by, by faith, by God's grace, And then when we get to sanctification, as though we have to make that happen. And I think what's crucially important is when we put our faith in Christ, we not only recognize he died for my sins, but I also now have his righteousness put on me. His perfect record, his A-plus becomes mine. My F was paid for on the cross. And I I read a story this week that I thought did an, an excellent job of putting that truth into to real life. It's by Steve Brown. Many of you listen to Steve Brown. Steve Brown's wife went to college in Macon and his, his mother-in-law was in our church. She died a number of years ago and 
But I remember meeting at the funeral, I met his, his, their two daughters. And he tells a story about one of their daughters who's named Robin, who when she was in high school, she found herself in a very, very difficult honors English literature class. And she, being a very conscientious student, a good student, came home after the first day or two of class and said, I have got to get out of this class. I've got to transfer to another class or I am going to make an F. She was terrified. She was quite upset. So she begged her dad to get her out of the class. He said, of course. So the next day he took her to the school. They went to the teacher who was also the head of the English department and a great teacher. And Steve said that he looked, that she looked up the teacher and when she saw Robin with her dad, she knew something was up. So she dismissed the, the students that were in her room so they could talk in private. And Steve Brown said to her that, you know, I'm here to get my daughter out of your class. She needs to be in a regular English class. It's too difficult for her. The problem, he said to my daughter, is she's so conscientious. And she is just going to be tortured in, in this class, not thinking that she can do well, so can you put her into a regular English class? And so the teacher said, Mr. Brown, I understand. And then the teacher looked at Robin and said, can I talk to Robin for a minute? And so she said to Robin, um, what if I promised you an A no matter what you do in the class? What if I give you an A even before the class starts? If I do, will you be willing to take the class? <laughs> and as Steve says, my daughter is not dumb. She started sniffling and said, well, I think I could do that. And so the teacher said, okay, I'm giving you an A in the class. Now you've got the A. Now just come to class. Now later the teacher explained to, to Steve what she had done. She explained how she took away the threat of the bad grades so Robin could learn English literature. And they later wrote, Robin ended up making straight A's all through that class. Now that's what God's done for us. When we come to know Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, when we are saved, we are, are converted when I become a Christian, God gives me Christ A. So I don't start off each morning saying, well, I've got to gain points from God. I'm going to read my Bible, or I'm going to pray, or I'm going to try to talk to friends and others about Christ, or I'm going to give money, or I'm going to go to the worship services, or I'm going to have a devotional time, or whatever it is, trying to somehow or another move my F up to an A. No, I do it because we have the A, because Christ... Uh, has paid for it all. When he said, it is finished on the cross, it is finished. I cannot add to his work. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the work of Christ, that you do give us an aid through him. May our trust, may our dependence, may our hope be on him and him only, not on ourselves, not on others. We pray you give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness and enable us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness and that even today might be a fresh start toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen.